24-24 right now. She's obliterating the record. Alicia Barnall is about to four-peat. The only man in history to do it. Kara Goucher, she wanted to do this event. It was important to her. Here in Duluth, how sweet it is. Her arm raised in triumph. Welcome, everybody, to the Gearing Up for Grandma's podcast, brought to you by Essentia Health. I'm your host, Peter Graves, and thanks so very much for being with us. Our guest for this episode is Tony Lloyd. He's one of our 2023 Grambassadors, which means he was selected from more than 100 applicants to be part of our team this year. His role is to help spread the word answer questions, and really just keep the drumbeat going ahead of our race weekend in June. And Tony, uh, thank you so very much for being with us. Well, it's an honor to be here with you, uh, Peter. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm thrilled to be here with you. So let's get right into it. You're someone who found running uh, later in life. So first things first, let's talk a little bit about that journey. Uh, the beginning for you was not so much about running fast it was simply a challenge that you wanted to take on. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody's a runner. I, I honestly believe that. I mean, if you think about kids in the yard, what are they doing? They're running, right? You know, and uh, and I spent much of my childhood in Arkansas. Uh, and I don't know if you remember back in the day, there was uh, a, uh, a television show called Combat. Uh, a guy named Vic Morrow, you know. And so I used to, in my head, I'm playing combat. I'm out in the woods all by myself. I'm running from tree to tree. I'm diving behind, uh, you know, some down stumps and all this kind of stuff. And so I ran as a kid. It just, I, I ran for the pure joy of running. And then uh, my family moved around a lot. Uh, and when I was in uh, junior high school, we were in a small town in Illinois. And I was out, I, I used to run just simply because I love to run. And this was uh, in small town, Illinois. This was probably early 1970-ish. Uh, the, the book Jogging was already out, but nobody used the word jogging in, <laughs> in this small town in Illinois. And uh, one day, a junior high school kid, and I'm out running, just running on the street with my coat on and whatever. And uh, and this kid, this older kid, a guy named Casey Finley, I admired him a lot. He was older like my brothers. And he said, you know what? You look really bizarre. What are you doing? Why are you running everywhere? And, and I felt kind of this instant shame, right? So I felt embarrassed that I was a runner. And so it had never occurred to me that I shouldn't be out there running. And, uh, but, but I did, I ran a junior high school track in a small school. And, you know, I love to get those ribbons. If you, you know, I, we were such a small school that I would run the 200 meter, then the 400 meter, then the 800 meter, then I'd do the long jump, I'd do the triple jump. And uh, back, of course, back in those days, we measured everything by yard. So it was like the 220, the 440, the 880, we didn't call it 200 meters. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed that. But after junior high school, I sort of gave it up, didn't run a lot after that. Um, and it was, I was 42 years old in 2001. And I was at a conference in April of 2001 in Colorado, a uh, business conference, and a coworker of mine was going out behind the uh, lodge where we were staying, and she was going for a run along this creek back here, uh, right beside the lodge. 
And I love being in nature and I like hiking back in those days. I still do. Uh, and so one day I asked her, can I go for a run with you? And she said, sure. And so we did what I called wogging. It's walk then jog, walk jog, right? It wasn't so much running, uh, but I was really, I love running with her. And of course, you know, she'd like drop me off and go for a fast run for like 45 minutes after that. Um, but she told me on one of those runs, she said in May, so this is April, 2001. She said in May, there's a thing called the Quad Cities Distance Classic. It's a half marathon, but they also have a 5K. And she said, I think you could run that 5K. And so with her vote of confidence, I went and signed up and I got my T-shirt and I, you know, got my race packet. First time I picked up a race packet, first time I got a race T-shirt. And uh, the next day I ran and I, I, I was so far behind the lead pack I couldn't see them. And I started thinking, maybe I'm in front. I don't know that's how far behind I was. But, uh, but uh, it, you know, I was just smitten. And uh, so that was May of 2001. I ran my first 5K. Uh, and somebody told me that there was a marathon in the Quad Cities in September of 2001. So I started training for that marathon. And I ran my first marathon that year, uh, my first year running. I uh, I didn't know how to train, Peter. I would just, all I knew was I needed to run a long way. So there was a, a trail along the Mississippi River there where I lived. And so I would drive to the end of the trail and park my car and then walk, jog my way home. And that was 22 miles. And so that's all I knew is just get through the distance, right? So I, um, I that's how I did it. I, I would just run and um, and just do some distance running. It's I don't recommend training that way. <laughs> I recommend a better uh, training regiment. Uh, we didn't really have a lot of uh, resources available to us then, uh, the way they are now at your fingertips. Uh, but that's how I got started. I was uh, it was 2001 and I ran and I just, uh, you know, I just finished my first marathon. That's all I did was just finish. Very interesting. So uh, how, how many uh, I want to talk about your first marathon experience, but how many marathons have you run now, Tony? Uh, I think 18 official marathons. There was one unofficial uh, run it anyway in 2012 at uh, New York City. Hurricane Sandy came in and knocked out all the power and all that. So they canceled the marathon. So a bunch of us got out in Central Park and just ran around <laughs> ran around Central Park and finished it that way. But 18 uh, marathons and 10 of those times I qualified for Boston. So it's I've I've had a lot of fun uh, out there on the marathon course. That, that's fantastic. So your first marathon was 2001. Uh, you told us uh, after the race, you said you'd you'd never do it again. <laughs> I guess why? And what do you remember about that day? You know when I um, when I ran the Quad Cities Marathon, uh, I only had one that one goal, and that was to finish. That was it. Uh, and so the the marathon took place about less than two weeks after the uh, bombing of the Twin Towers and the Pentagon and the plane that crashed in Pennsylvania uh, in uh, September of 2001. 
And so part of the race went out on uh, Arsenal Island. There's a rock island arsenal there. And so security was really tight and they didn't have any spectators out there. So I spent a long time out there by myself. Um, and I remember also when we came off of the uh, Arsenal Island, you come off really close to the finish line, but then you have to turn left then and go out into East Moline and run right. And I'm like, but the finish line is right there. You know? Uh, so, so we, so I, uh, I ran that. Uh, the other thing um, that, and I got near the finish line and I started thinking, well, I could sprint the rest of the way into the finish line because my wife and my neighbors are here and I should sprint. My legs were like cement. There was no way, no way that I was going to sprint to the finish uh, I also, you know, like I, um, I wore a cotton t-shirt that day. I would not recommend that to anyone. I was chafing in places I didn't know I had. Um, and, and so after the marathon, you know, it's like, uh, like you said, my wife asked me, she said, so do you think you'll do another? And I, you know, she hardly got the sentence out of her mouth when I said, no, you know, I, I am never doing this again. This was too painful. Uh, there's no way that I'm going to do it again. I checked it off the bucket list, so I'm done. But of course, <laughs> you and I both know that I was lying, right? So right, exactly. You know, uh, I remember once, uh, and and you know, we have always brought in great speakers to grandmas, and one that I, I was very taken by was Dr. George Sheehan. You may know the name. The, Robert Lipside at the New York Times referred to him as a Socrates in sneakers. Um, he, he saw a lot of a portent between the marathon and life, which I find really interesting because some people do it once, like you thought you were going to do, and that's that's life-changing for another reason. But this has uh, taken on a life of its own now, You've run 18 marathons and, and and you like to learn. But so what was the thing after that, that when you said, no, I'm going to run some more, what, what was that all about? Yeah. You know, I mean, there were, there were things that uh, we were going into the winter time then. And of course I was getting runner's world magazine when we used to get physical magazines. Right. So runner's world magazine would come. And in the back of the magazine was uh, they would list races and so I started circling some of those races, you know, when I read, I'm going, that sounds fun. Oh, I've never been here. I'd like to go there. I'd like to see that. Uh, but, you know, I realized that I can do hard things. That was one of the lessons learned uh, coming out of that marathon. And I think for anyone who who attempts the marathon or the half marathon or your first 5K, you know, just learning that about yourself, that you can do hard things. That was that was important for me. Um, and, and I'm also very goal oriented. So give me a goal and I will work towards it. Um, and, and so don't be afraid to challenge yourself as you think about, you know, whether it's in running or in life. Uh, you mentioned George Sheehan and how he, he talked about mindfulness of just being present out on that course and far ahead of his time tony i think far ahead oh he was far ahead of his time wasn't he yeah um but you know one of the things that also came out of that race i think uh, you know just making it my goal to finish 
was important because all I wanted to do was experience what it felt like to run a marathon. And I developed this kind of uh, attitude that I call uh, low ego, high fun. And, and I think that has sustained me over a long period of time. You know, I, I, some of the phrases I use a lot are like run and have fun. And, and, and so sometimes, you know, like if you're really cranking out and you're really trying to get those last few miles and you're fading and all that, you might not think about how fun it is. But if you think about when you're a kid and you come in out of play, like your face is red and you're sweating, you, you know, so fun can also be hard. Um, I, another thing that came out of that was, uh, I use this phrase called, uh, and somebody else came up with it, but I use it. It's called my, my race, my pace. And, and, and it's about not paying attention to what everybody else is doing because there's always somebody faster than you. And I was, uh, I was once in a, in a race and like in the last mile, this 14 year old girl passed me and she was asthmatic and she she sounded like a calliope when she came past me. She was just wheezing and gasping and whistling and noises were coming out of her. And I'm thinking, man, if she can run faster, I can run faster. And then at some point it just hit me. Wait a minute, my race, my pace. I don't need to worry about what that 14 year old girl is doing or that guy in my age group or whoever it might be, you know, just sort of my own thing. Um, and then the other thing I'd say is just run the mile you're in. So, you know, talking about George Sheehan and mindfulness, you can't worry about mile 14 if you're in mile 12. You can't worry about mile 10 if you're in mile 12. You just run the mile that you're in. And so that whole mindfulness, being present, being playful, I think that's really sustained me uh, over time. And it's what's made uh, the marathon addictive for me. And how lovely that you express that so well, because I, I think that's something that a lot of our listeners uh, will be very, very taken by. So you go from I'll never do this again to I want to qualify for Boston, which you did. Uh, and you did that at Grandma's in 2003. And then you went from casual runner to someone with lofty goals in a pretty short time. You know, um, what changed your life regarding that, that you wanted to pursue these running milestones? Yeah, I think, um, so one is I love a good stretch goal. Uh, I'm just, you know, uh, in, in my second year of running, I ran four marathons. My my goal was to run four marathons with at least one of them under four hours. And then the next year I ran uh, three marathons with a goal of at least one of them being below three hours and 30 minutes, which would qualify me for uh, Boston at that time. And, uh, and, and I did run that at uh, grandma's. It's like a 325 something or another that I ran that year. But uh, the other thing is that first year I was kind of training by myself, right? I told you I parked 22 miles away and I'd run back towards the finish uh, to, towards my house. So uh, while I was running, I kept noticing these groups of people running together, coming the opposite way from me. And so as they would come by, I'd go, who are you? you know, and they run by and I go, hey, how, how are you organized? What's going on? Right. And so I just you know, shout questions to them, to them as they came by. And I found out that there was uh, the Corn Belt Running Club there in the Iowa, Illinois uh, border area where I was living at the time. And uh, there was a, a, a running store there, still there, called Running Wild in Davenport, Iowa, and they uh, developed a training program. And so in 
2002, I signed up for the training program and I became part of the running community. And, you know, I just sort of fell in with my running group and there, you know, there were people, Patches Breed or uh, John Seavers, Joe Malouche, Sarah Brewster. These were like my running buddies. And I knew that I was going to show up because I knew they would be waiting for me. And what I didn't know was they were going to show up because they knew I was going to be waiting for them. Right. And so we we sort of really bonded in that first year. And and one of the things that happened, though, was uh, like patches was a little bit faster than all of us. And so we started trying to keep up with patches to see if we could keep her in our sight at least. And then she started talking about qualifying for Boston. And we we're like, what's that? <laughs> Boston qualifying, that sounds like a lot of fun. So uh, I didn't know you had to qualify for the Boston Marathon at the time. And so we learned about it. And, and I like to say I didn't get a lot faster, but I did get older. And so, you know, my age group kind of uh, crept up a little bit. And so I was able in uh, 2003 to qualify for the Boston Marathon. Um, so, you know, the other thing that happened that year was it was my first year with a proper training program. And I can't emphasize that enough to have, you know, a, a coach or someone, maybe even a, you know, even if you have Garmin, you can go on, uh, you know, the, the Garmin Connect and you can download a training program, but have something so you're not out there on your own guessing what it is that you're trying to do. So that that was really helpful. Yeah. that. Uh, so I want to I want to talk a little bit thoroughly about Boston. Uh, you ran there uh, 2005. Apparently it wasn't your best race, uh, but take me through the experience, including sort of the milieu uh, of Boston, because I mean, arguably it's the most historic marathon in the world. And there's so much texture, so many stories, the, uh, the Elliott lounge bar place, which gathers all the great runners and coaches. It, it, there's a feeling that when I talk about it, the hair on my arms, and it is right now, standing up a little bit. Boston is something special. What was that race like for you? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, going into Boston, I was I had been injured for a while, and so I was undertrained. And then it was a warm day the year that I ran. So um, that's one thing to keep in mind as I kind of tell the story. But, um, uh, you know, I, it, like you said, Peter, I mean, just simply getting the invitation when the email came in and it's like, yes, you've been accepted to Boston. Or back in those days, it might have even been a letter. I don't remember now. Um, you know, so I was accepted to Boston. I just went bananas. And, and first I was accepted in 2004, but I was injured because I'd been overtraining and I'd been running in the wrong shoes. And so that was a big problem. Now, they were not ASICs, by the way, who was a sponsor of this program. So it was another brand shoes and, and they were just mis misfit for me. And so I got injured and I stayed injured. I kept, you know, trying to push through because I have this strong worth work ethic and I kept trying to push through and I just kept re-injuring myself. So I had to, to defer until 2005. Um, and so when I got there, because I'd been injured so long and I'd been unable to really train well during the winter, um, you know, I, I had this sort of, uh, you know, mixed emotion because being in Boston is just legendary, right? <laughs> we all, 
we all want to go do this. We all want to go sit in Hopkins out in the field and wait for that uh, race to start and go get in our start corral and take off and run through all those little bergs leading up to uh, leading up to Boston. You know, to see that sit go sign as you come down through there and make that last little turn and all that. But unfortunately for, for me, I, I kind of had Heartbreak Hill in mind. I was like, you have to be ready for Heartbreak Hill. And that's about mile 18, I think, something like that. And so I really, you know, worked my way towards Heartbreak Hill. And, and the other thing that I did, Peter, and I know that you're familiar with this mistake, is I went out too fast. Yes, a common mistake. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And uh, in fact, I think that's what they're going to put on my tombstone is he went out too fast. Right. <laughs> so here I was, you know, running with these really elite fit athletes. I'm 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 running. It's a little bit downhill at the start. I get to mile 18 and I cross Heartbreak Hill and I'm done. But I'm only at mile 18. And so I've got a ways to go. Um, and so I started putting in walk breaks in there. And I and so that means that I was taking longer and the sun was getting up higher and and I was getting hotter and hotter. I was out there for almost four and a half hours. And uh, at one point, a young woman ran up beside me and she was in her teen in, team in training jersey. And she was quite chipper, you know, and she was trying to be encouraging to me. And she's like, oh, come on, come on. Let's just run to that next bridge over there and, and, and just let's go. Let's go. And I was in no mood. I was having none of it. Uh, so, so I finally, uh, you know, I finally make my way after like four and a half hours. I'm really overheated. And at some point, I wasn't really able to digest the food and the water and the things that I was taking in. It was all just sort of sitting in my stomach. And so I was dehydrated and I was, I was in trouble and I knew it. So when I crossed the finish line, uh, this young lady's putting the medal around my neck. And I said, where's the medical tent? And she pointed to it. And so I walked over to it and I walked in and evidently I blacked out because it was really hot outside and it was dark inside and they had air conditioning and they had like, you know, wood chips on the floor and cots everywhere. And so I walked through the door and that cold air conditioning hit me and I just went face first right down into those wood chips. And so I woke up. And the first thing that I noticed was there's like something in my nose. So I think, oh, no, they put a cannula in my nose to give me some oxygen. And I reach up and it turns out there's a wood chip jammed up in my nose. Where I have just face planted into this thing. And, and the other thing, though, was I noticed that there was an IV in my arm. And the first thought that hit me then was, you know, I think I started doing this for my health. And this doesn't seem too healthy. I might have become a little too obsessed. I might be trying to be a little too ambitious, a little too quickly. And so I, I just made it a goal to not run marathons for a few years. And from like 2006 through 11, I didn't run marathons, and I, but I did a lot of other things. So, but it was it was an a, an amazing experience. I'm glad I did it, but uh, but it also had become a little bit of an unhealthy obsession too. As somebody now who's gone to 13 Olympics, I, I think I can speak with some experience about how the first Olympic Games is often a washout for a young athlete going over. The Olympics are so big. Pin trading, meeting friends from another country, particularly if you haven't traveled much at that point. Um, you almost need to go through that 
but then your second Olympics is usually much better. So uh, um, you've talked about Boston and then uh, you did uh, the 2013 New York Marathon. And I, I want to bring this next part up because it obviously had a happy ending. And um, But I find that talking about this subject, which is depression, um, is, uh, is very important. Um, and I think Simone Biles, Michaela Schifrin, other people who uh, have gone through really hard times, um, I feel that the stories being out there are really important. So people know they're a lot of, not alone, but I understand there was a period where depression crept in. Uh, and um, sometimes I, I, I have the notion that um, the athlete and the open road, um, that's another great beauty of distance running. It's so simplistic, you know, it's, you need a pair of sneakers and a singlet, basically, you know, uh, what were those years like? And um, what did just working out, how did that all play into a kind of recovery, uh, Tony? Yeah, so it's a great question. And, you know, I mean, I want to give a little bit of a trigger warning for people because I did go to a really dark place. And so, you know, if you're listening to this and that's something that you don't want to hear about, maybe skip ahead a little bit here. Um, but, um, you know, those were the years when my career was taking off. And eventually I became an executive at Fortune 500 companies and I was traveling the world. Um, and so, you know, one of the mistakes that I made, Peter, was I thought I could do without sleep. You know, I would, I would, uh, you know, be in who knows what what city around the world, and I had flown in, and I would just take meetings when the plane landed, and I would work late into the night, and then I would go, well, I don't need much sleep, and that was a lie I was telling myself. So the next morning would come and it'd be early and then I wanted to get a run in. So I'd get up at four, 4.30 in the morning and I'd take off in some city I'd never been to in the dark, you know. I'd go out running somewhere and then I'd come back. Now, the beauty of it was I got to run in cities all over the world. You know, I, I, I've, I've run in, you know, in uh, Amsterdam and Bangkok and Buenos Aires and Beijing and Argentina, you know, all over the world. I've, I've, I've been all over the world and, and everywhere I went, I met runners. And that was an amazing part of being in the running community. But at the same time, I was not practicing self-care. You know, I, I remember waking up at 2.30 in the morning one time and going, I really have no idea what city I'm in. And, and, I, and I laid there for a while going, it's going to come to me. And I'm like, nope, I have no idea. Uh, and then finally I sat up and I turned on the light and I looked at the telephone in the hotel room where I was at and I could see the writing on the phone and I was in Prague and then I'm like, oh, okay, I'm in Prague. Okay, now I know where I am. So I was I was exhausted and I was burning the candle on all uh, on both ends, while at the same time I was living this life of absolute privilege, you know, and, and so I felt so guilty for feeling depressed. I was living this privileged life. I, I remember the first time I was running along the Seine in Paris and I go, 
I'm from Arkansas. People from Arkansas do not run along the Seine in Paris. You know? so, so I had this fantastic, amazing life. But at the same time, I had to acknowledge that um, I was becoming more and more severely depressed. And I think I wasn't practicing self-care. I thought I could eat or drink anything I wanted. I didn't really, you know, I didn't do all the things that you have to do. And I was also, even though I was traveling around the world and I was seeing people in the world, I was really socially isolated. And social isolation we know today is as bad as smoking. So, so, so many things came to, together um, and really depression was a natural consequence of that lifestyle. You say it with uh, such honesty and and grace, and and uh, that bout of depression leads you to run at twenty nineteen uh, a lifetime PR at Grandma's three nineteen eleven pretty good time I have to say. Um, so you know all of this may not be a cure, but it had to be very special for you to come back from a dark place and begin doing the thing you love around people that clearly, Tony, you enjoy being around. And I know it's, it's vibrant. Uh, I love people and I engage everybody, you know? Uh, and I think it helps being a good broadcast journalist when, when you want to listen to stories and you want to help bring stories that may help people. So I, I think this is important, but, um, Maybe not a cure totally, but a part of a cure, Tony. Right, right. You know, um, going into 2019, right at the end of 2018, um, and this is your trigger warning here, uh, I I had um, a new book that was out and it was successful. It was number one bestseller in several categories on uh, Amazon. Uh, I had two TEDx talks that had just come out in 2018. Uh, I, I had a podcast. I was doing business coaching. Like I say, I was really living this successful life on the outside, but I was really severely depressed and it was getting worse. And that cognitive dissonance of you know the external success and the internal um, turmoil was really getting to me. And so right at the end of 2018, I had breakfast with a friend, a guy named Michael Fitzpatrick. And um, Michael asked me, just what we say to each other, you know, how are you? And I had been thinking about this question, how am I? I'd been thinking about it for a long time. And here's what I said to Michael. I said, I don't want to be alive. That's what I said. And when the sentence came out of my mouth, it shocked him and it shocked me. And I couldn't even believe I had said that sentence. But then I, I immediately said, look, I'm not about to self-harm. But I just can't figure this thing out. I mean, what is what is this life thing all about? What is happening here? I just don't get it. And so Michael recommended to me a book, and it's called uh, Lost Connections, Why You're Depressed and How to Find Hope. It's by a guy named Johan Hari. And what was really interesting about Johan Hari's research was he found nine different causes of depression but only two of them had anything to do with your brain or brain chemistry. And that shocked me because I'd always been told the story that, you know, well, you know, you're not getting enough dopamine. And so you need to do these things or serotonin. You know, these, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Serotonin. Exactly. 
And so uh, I read this book and, the, you know, he said, we're really disconnected and that's causing societal depression all around. So people are disconnected from purpose or meaningful work or meaningful values or, you know, status and respect, or they're disconnected from the natural world. And he had these nine different things where we're disconnected in some way. Um, and what that did for me, Peter, was it gave me a sense of agency. I felt like, well, if those are things that are happening within my life, I can do something about that. So I took a self-assessment right at the end of 2018, the beginning of 2019, and um, I measured myself in 10 different success domains. So everything from physical and emotional, intellectual and spiritual well-being. So those are things that we think of as thriving but then how are we connected, right? So social well-being, your marital and your fam family relationships. And then how are you contributing? So what's your vocation? What's your um, what's your avocation? How, how are you contributing financially? Uh, and so all these different areas that I, 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 on a scale of one to 10, how am I doing right now? And then on a scale of one to 10, how do I want to be doing? And so in 2019, I set a goal. I said, I'm going to live my personal best in every area of my life. I mean, everything that's within my powers is an old saying, if you want God to laugh, tell him your plans, right? So if, if, I, if I'd made that plan at the beginning of 2020, it might have been a different uh, outcome altogether. But I, I just, I wanted to live my best life in 2019. And so in 2019, my running improved in every area. And I said, you know, that was the, I turned 60 that year and I said, okay, for a new decade, I'm going to set a new decade PR, not a lifetime PR, but a decade PR. Like I, I'm never going to be as fast as I was, you know, 20 years ago. So I might as well just try to do the best I can this decade. But by focusing on everything, like I changed to a plant-based diet, um, I, uh, you know, I did stretching more and yoga, I did, you know, like everything, I was doing everything, and my race times began to drop. So that year, I set a personal best in 13 different distances, everything from the mile through the marathon, including that 319.11, which is uh, my personal best in the marathon. I ran it that year at grandma's. And, you know, grandma's had a, had a special place in my heart already because that's where I was qualifying for Boston the first time. And now here I came back and did a personal best there. It's just, you know, it was just an amazing experience. So, yeah, it, it was it was it it was such a turnaround for me to go from my darkest day to my personal best by the end of 2019. And the cautionary tale is that people with depression can overcome this and there is help out there. And if you're one of those that happens to be listening, uh, seek help. There is a lot of loving, kind help out there. And we care about all of you. We really do. So thank you for sharing that. That that that's very powerful and and um, means a lot. You've talked about Duluth, and we'll shift gears a little bit. Uh, your second year serving as a grand ambassador, and what an amazing one you are. Um, what do you find that is special about Duluth grandmas on that weekend? Because to me, it's a it's continued to be like lightning in a bottle. There, there. It's, it's something that's so powerful and 
sometimes hard to put into words. The friendliness of the people, I think, has got to be also a part of it. Uh, but but I'll let you answer the question, Tony. You know, Peter, um, you, you're hitting right on it. When I was recruited up here, um, I, I was in Racine, Wisconsin, and we spun off a company and sold it. And so that kind of freed me up to do something else. And so a recruiter reached out to me and brought me up to the Twin Cities to work here. And when she and I were on the phone, she said, I'm like, well, I don't know, Twin Cities, you know, I'm thinking maybe I want to get somewhere south where it's warmer. I don't know, you know. And she said, let me tell you something. Minnesota is the hardest place to recruit people to. And it's the hardest place to recruit people from. Because once they get here, they just fall in love with the place. And, and she was right. I mean, I've been here 11 years now. This is the longest I've ever lived in any one spot. I've, I, I've lived in 23 different states because I, I was a consultant for a few years. And then I, I worked for corporations that moved me around a lot. And so Minnesota is definitely by far our, uh, my, my wife and my, it's our favorite state. And so you know, we have this embarrassment of riches here because we have, uh, you know, world-class parks and paths uh, throughout Minnesota. And then in Duluth in particular, uh, if you're anywhere in, in uh, Duluth, you're probably about a thousand feet from a path that can take you to one of their, uh, one of their parks. And the, um, you know, the, just world-class uh, runners here in Minnesota, and you could name a bunch of them, you know, uh, you know, Kerry Goucher, uh, Dick Beardsley, you know, I mean, uh, uh, people you've interviewed on here, uh, Dakota is here. I mean, just, and, and I, I, I'm almost embarrassed I started naming people because there's so many more that I didn't name. Um, but then, you know, we have these world-class races and, and, you know, grandma's is, is, um, is up there. There's also the twin cities marathon. There's also Bemidji blue walks. There's, you know, Lake Wobegon trail marathon. There's the Mankato marathon. There's so many grandma's of course is very special to me. Um, and, but, you know, it's like they say, it's a world-class event with small town charm. And, uh, I always say about grandma's it punches above its weight class. Yeah, I, I, I was going to ask you about that. What do you mean by that? Yeah, punches above his weight class. I mean, you know, if you think about those scrappy little fighters that come in, <laughs> that you just you just don't expect them to do it, right? Um, but it, there, there was a, a thing on Sesame Street uh, several years ago called Which of These is Not Like the Others, right? They used to do this, this little song and rhyme, and which of these is not like the others. And so world-class major marathons, you know, you think about Berlin and Boston, Chicago, London, New York, Tokyo, and Duluth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I would stack grandma's marathon up against any one of those races. It's just, you know, it, it, you know, there's the downhill course, there's the, um, you know, the, here's one thing that people don't think about, like the civic engagement that happens there in the city and in the counties. You don't get that everywhere. Like, uh, you know, race directors are telling me, listen, we're having a really hard time getting police support for our races. Uh, it's costing us so much more for our permits. We're, you know, we're, we're getting stonewalled by people. So the civic engagement, the um, flat, fast course, but with few rolling hills, right, that that allows you to, uh, to, to use different kinds of muscle groups as you go along. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful scenic course, of course. 
um, you know, the world-class elite runners, and then all of us citizen runners out there on the same course. I love that about the marathon. Um, you know, great crowd support, friendly volunteers. And then, you know, you've even interviewed the medical uh, volunteers and medical directors, uh, the press corps, the sponsors, world-class sponsors. And, and I have to mention this, that uh, the staff at Grandma's Marathon, talk about punching above your weight class. A tiny little staff over there. There are such quality people, such a quality area. It's just, it, it's amazing. Do you find other uh, things maybe stepping away from the race that uh, particularly note uh, you liked uh, about Duluth, uh, restaurants or, you know, anything like that? You know, one of, one of the things I would um, encourage anyone who's considering uh, Grandma's Marathon, there is a Facebook group for the 2023 participants at Grandma's Marathon. And, you know, I've been up several times and I have my favorite little haunts that I go to, but I put up a, you know, question one of the first days that that group was open. And I said, what's your favorite restaurant up there? And I got so many answers. I could never eat that much food. And I'm a good eater, right? There are a lot of wonderful restaurants there, indeed. There are. So, you know, the uh, Portland Malt Shop or Love Creamery, uh, the Duluth Grill, Sammy's Pizza, uh, North Northern Water Smokehouse and the OMC Smokehouse, the New Scenic Cafe, and on and on and on and on. So, so great food if you're going to be there and you're a marathoner, you know you're going to eat. So, so there's so many great choices. If you join the Facebook group, you can you can uh, see that. You know, there's the parks and trails we mentioned. There's over nine thousand acres of parkland in Duluth, and that you know, sort of that keeping that uh, green space within the city. You you don't get tax dollars off of that. In fact, it takes tax dollars, but they maintain all that green space. You know, there's um, if you go to a lot of the sort of artsy communities around the world, like you go to Austin or Boulder or Bend, Oregon, or, you know, globally, you go to Prague or somewhere, you'll see people, you'll see cities that had a really unique culture. And you'll see bumper stickers that say like, keep Bend weird, right? Duluth still has it. Duluth still has that kind of funky hippie vibe to it that I really, really enjoy. Um, and, and, you know, there are things that you can do there that you can't do anywhere else. Like there's, a, if you go down, uh, you can watch a thousand foot long ship navigate through uh, the canal under the aerial lift bridge. Uh, or if, you know, if you're up there, you might as well just start heading northeast up towards Grand Marais and you're going to run into, um, you know, two harbors. Make sure you stop at Betty's Pie Shop while you're up there. Uh, you know, there's a, a Split Rock Lighthouse and on and on and on. So, you know, it's just, it's a magical, magical uh, part of the country. It certainly is. So uh, maybe about two more questions before we wrap up in something that could go much longer. But um, I, I'm sort of curious of what, at this point, where you're at in your running and in your life, what would you tell your younger self when you lined up for that very first marathon? Because I think we have a lot of first-time marathoners or people who are considering running at grandma's. What would what would you tell your younger self? Yeah, you know, I, I think I I don't want to repeat a lot of what I said earlier, right? Like run and have fun and all those kinds of things. Uh, something that's really important to me right now at this phase of my life is I would love to see more runners who don't look like me. 
uh, you know, the the uh, Grandma's Marathon this year has a program called Running to Common Ground. And they're providing scholarships or at least partial scholarships. I'm not sure how it all works, but to runners who represent underrepresented groups or peoples, right? So uh, Black, Brown, uh, Native, uh, LGBTQ, et cetera, et cetera. So I would love to see this community continue to grow with runners that maybe don't look like me. Uh, you know, um, uh, Alison Desiree wrote a book that I read this year called Running While Black. And it just reminded me of the privilege that I have. And so if there's any way that I can use my light to shine a light towards those who don't normally get the spotlight, that that would be just amazing to me. So, um, you know, look into running to common ground if you are an underrepresented person. Uh, I would say try one race. Uh, and it doesn't have to be the marathon first thing. You, you know, um, the Young Athletes Foundation up there, they put on five major races and they have like three kids races or youth races. You know, the the St. Fantasy 4K, Fisker 5K, the Park Point 5 Miler, or the Minnesota Mile, on and on and on. So, you know, try something. Just Just put on those shoes and go out and try it. It is the first step, indeed. And now just recently, you've been invited to the 2023 Abbott World Marathon Majors Age Group World Championships. That'll be at the Chicago Marathon next fall. So from humble beginnings, just someone who wanted to be part of something, now you're going to the World Championships. That must be really cool and satisfying. Uh, you know, I can't... I... I didn't even know about this before uh, like a year or so ago. I, I heard about the Abbott World Marathon Majors. And, you know, so we mentioned some of those uh, will go Boston, um, uh, Chicago, New York, and then um, Berlin, London, Tokyo. And so there are the six star finishers. Uh, that, you know, if you run all six of those, you get a medal with six stars. And of course, I'm all about the medal. I'm glad to go do that. Uh, but but they also do a thing called the uh, Wanda World uh, Age Group World Championships. And um, when I ran Grandma's Marathon earlier in 2022, I got an email from them and they said, you know, you scored a lot of points based on your finish time in, in Grandma's Marathon. And if you run another... Uh, marathon before the end of the year, um, and you know it's one of our qualifying races. Then you could get invited to the world championship. And I and I started looking at the times that some of those world championship racers in my age group run, and and I didn't think it was within my reach. Um, so the um, uh, the other thing that they did was they had a virtual race towards the end of the year because the only Minnesota race that qualifies for these world majors is Grandma's Marathon. It's the only one in Minnesota that does. So I thought about traveling, but I ended up signing up for their virtual race. And then I ran the Bemidji Blue Ox Marathon in the fall. And between what I ran at Grandma's plus this virtual race, um, they, I, I got the email and it said, congratulations, we'd like to invite you to this world championship. Now, I know that there are those who are going to finish first. And then there are those of us like me who are going to make those people who finish first work harder. 
And so, and so I'll be somewhere about the middle of a pack of those folks, but I'll be there and I'll be really happy to be there. It's, it's just, I, I can't even, I can't even put into words how mind blowing it is to me that I've been invited to something, to anything called the world championship. So it's uh it's quite an honor to, to get the invitation. Well, Tony, Thank you so much. Uh, I've enjoyed it. There, There is inspiration and sparkle in your eyes and joy in what you talk about. And it's very instructive. So uh, thank you for taking the time. Certainly my, my indeed pleasure to talk to you. Uh, thank you, Peter. Yeah, it's great. We're very lucky to have Tony as a guest and as a 2023 Grambassador. And we're looking forward to seeing you, buddy, next year again in Duluth. And wish you all the best in the championships next year. So, my friends, this Gearing Up for Grandma's podcast is brought to you by Essentia Health. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Of course, please subscribe, rate us, tell your friends. We'd appreciate it. Grandma's Marathon is proudly presented by Toyota, Members Cooperative Credit Union, and ASICS. I'm Peter Graves. We'll talk running again. So long.